Coming up on this week's show, we talked to Chris Kirshner about the Hawks, and we talked to Kelsey Russo about the Cavs. Welcome to the Back to Back Pod on the Athletic Podcast Network. This is Nerder She Wrote with your host, Dave Dufour, with Mo DeKeel and Seth Partnow. Are you ready to be entertained? Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Nerder She Wrote podcast on the Back to Back podcast on the Athletic Podcast Network. I think I got all those things in there. Uh, it's me, Dave DeFore. I got Mo. I got Seth. What's up, guys? What's up, Dave? I don't know. I'm flying through it because I feel like this is going to be a really big show. <laughs> Joining us this week to start off the show, Chris Kirshner, our uh, beat writer for the Atlanta Hawks. Chris, you had some big news in Atlanta. Trey Young. Signed with Clutch. How's everybody feel about that? Well, I think when Hawks fans saw that news, there was some concern just because now that J.R. Smith is officially with the Lakers, 33% of that roster are Clutch clients. So I think they just automatically assume that when Trey's contract expires, um, that he will join Los Angeles and play with LeBron. So I think there was definitely some concern on that end. But, you know, after talking with Trey's father, Ray, I learned that, you know, it had nothing to do with LeBron. They they didn't consult LeBron before um, moving from Octagon to Clutch. Um, this mainly had to do with Omar Wilkes, who's now the head of basketball at Clutch, moving from Octagon to Clutch. Um, now that that move now allows Rich Paul to, to be CEO and, and kind of oversee everything. So I think for for Trey um, and the Hawks, I think it's a good partnership just because, um, like Ray was saying, Rich Paul hasn't had any um, reason to come to Atlanta and, and sit courtside. And Cam Reddish, who who um, I'm sure we'll talk to uh, talk about in in a couple minutes, but you know, he's expected to also sign with Clutch. Anthony Edwards, who is possibly a a, a Hawks target in the draft, he already signed with Clutch. I I, I think it's a good move for Atlanta, um, and and for Trey Young. You know, Trey is one of the the, the up and coming stars in the NBA, and and a pair. Um, himself with Rich Ball and Clutch and be associated with LeBron. I think it's I think it's nothing but good news for for the Hawks team track. Well, I guess let's jump right into Hawks and, and their off season outlook, shall we? I mean, it, their season's over. Um, do you feel? Do you get the sense that they feel this past season was a little bit of a disappointment? Um, yeah, I, I do think so. Uh, especially just talking with, um, the players and, and Trey is definitely a big part of that. Um, there was definitely no secret that Trey was disappointed with how things ended up this season for Atlanta. But I also specifically asked, um, Travis Schlang, uh, you know, Hawks general manager, if he, um, expected Trey's exponential growth from year one to year two this season. And, and he, he flatly said, no. And I think that was really apparent because of, you know, the roster they built. Just look at the roster and what Trey had to play with for most of the season. And it's not very good. You know, they were expecting Alan Crabb to be a, a big part of their bench. And, you know, he he plainly just was not really good this year. Um, it, it looked like he just forgot how to shoot threes and that continued when he was traded to Minnesota. So I, I think that there was definitely some disappointment. Um, I think especially with Hawks fans, because there was some talk uh, prior to the season, if um, you know, Atlanta being a, a dark horse, a seed in the Eastern conference. And, you know, I, I didn't see that 
uh, happening unless like everybody who is on the roster from last season just took a big uh, leap. And we only saw that with Trey. John Collins definitely took a leap forward this year, but um, you know he was suspended for 25 games. Kevin Herter was injured for um, 11 games and was on a minutes restriction to start the season, and he dealt with uh, various other minor injuries throughout the year. So, you know, the only way for the Hawks to really, you know, be in contention for that eighth seed by the end of the season was if everybody um, grew like Trey, and, and you know, that's probably unrealistic to to think that's going to happen. So that's a a good place to to go to next. I think is that those kind of unrealistic expectations were uh, part of why it seemed like Hawks fans were a little disappointed in the job Lloyd Pierce did. Mm-hmm. This year, and I, I think this is unfair. I know we, we've worked on a piece earlier this year together, and and I brought it up again in in our kind of Hawks breakdown. Is just how young the Hawks playing rotation was, and and they always knew it was going to be that way. Do you think that this was fair to Pierce? If there's been sort of some blowback on him, and 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 kind of how that works out going forward? No, I mean, I I really don't think the the blowback on Pierce is fair at all. Just because, again. What I was saying before, the roster that you know he was given this year and, and in his first season um, just wasn't good. Like they, you can't compete with the roster that you have to rely on players such as Damian Jones. You have to rely on Bruno Fernando, Alan Crabb. Um, you know they went into this season thinking Evan Turner was going to be their op, their their main backup point guard. I mean, just just think about that for a second. You can't really compete at a high level and think that you're going to be in the playoff conversation. If those are the guys you're going to have to rely on for 82 games, obviously we didn't play 82 games this season, but we didn't expect a pandemic, but you know, that was what the Hawks were were dealing with. And that's what um, the roster Pierce was given. I do think that Pierce is um, a really smart coach and just talking with other coaches around the league and even players that he's come in contact with throughout his stops um, prior to getting his first head coaching opportunity. Um, he's really respected. Uh, I remember talking with Greg Popovich about just what he learned. You know, obviously Popovich has been in, in the league for so long now, but you know, just what he learned from um, coaching with Pierce for Team USA this past summer. Um, and I, I do think that when given the opportunity to have a, a competent roster that is able to compete at a high level, I do think that Pierce is going to show that, you know, he knows what he is doing. And I think sometimes um, fans don't really know like exactly what's going on behind the scenes, but I, I do know that the players really do like Lloyd. And I, I do think that some of the uh, dissension in the locker room um, this season had to do with just the amount of losing that was was going on you know when you lose Collins for 25 games there's there's going to be some really rough spots and and we saw that they had two losing streaks of at least 10 games this season and anytime you have a losing streak of that length people are going to be upset yeah I think it's one I think this whole thing of the criticism that Lloyd Pierce was facing was more due to this unrealistic expectations that some people had. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I just never had this team competing for a playoff spot. You know, looking at this team, the roster, everything we talked about, everything we've seen, you know, the whole time I was just like, this team's not playing any defense, you know, like 
Trey Young, as great as he is offensively, uh, Dave mentioned it in the articles, you know, his effort defensively is is pitiful. It's not even that he can't defend, it's that he doesn't try. He dies on screens and all of those things and stuff like that. And it's hard to to balance all that stuff out. And I just felt like the criticism that Pierce was facing, I was like, what the, the jump in expectations just seemed so weird to me going into this season. Well, it's too much too soon. Right. Like we have this uh, I hate to go on a societal rant, but like a microwave sort of situation here where you have a guy who is at some point going to be a very good player in the NBA. He's already I mean, he scored, what, 29 points a game this year. That's not easy to do, Um, but that's not like it's there's two sides to the game. And he is a I mean, I don't know, might be the biggest negative on defense in the entire league. Is that a stretch? I mean, I don't think so. I mean, he's a guy I would target consistently. Yeah. And so you, now you've got to figure out how to make that work. But also young players just don't usually win. So any anyone that looked at this roster at the start of the season and thought, you know, that's a playoff team, it was just fooling themselves. And, and a lot of it, I think, is because Trey just seems so special. But, I mean, God, like look at LeBron's early teams. They weren't very good. <laughs> I mean, if you go back, Dave, and like we wouldn't have any patience for the Oklahoma City Thunder kids, right? You know, if 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 it was the case now, like we were, this is the kind of thing they're they're projecting upward, they're trending upward. I like where they're going. And Chris, maybe you can speak a little bit of the the development of some of these wings that we're beginning to see: Cam Reddish, uh, Kevin Herter, and 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 Hunter, um, and and talk about where they're going. Like they have promise, but it's not one of those things that it's going to turn into immediate wins. These guys got to learn how to win in the NBA. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, and it's funny that you mentioned those Thunder teams because um, earlier this season, um, you know, Trey specifically said that you know he's had conversations with Russell Westbrook about you know those early years and. Oklahoma City and and you know their record starting off and remaining patient and for someone like Trey it's hard to remain patient when you're putting up the numbers he is and you know again they had one of the youngest rosters in the league I don't know if it, if, if it was the youngest just because Vince Carter was such an outlier with his age but um, you know men- mentioning the wings their growth is super important for what this team is going to do in the future. Um, you know, I, I talked with Sam, uh, um, in a story today and we were talking about Kevin Herter specifically about, um, what his future is with the Hawks, because offensively he's the kind of player you want to pair with, uh, someone like Trey in the backcourt, but there's definitely some concerns defensively on, um, you know, if he is the right pair for Trey Young, just because, He's not the best defender. He's also not the worst worst defender, but you're going to have some legitimate defensive concerns, and it's probably not something that you're going to feel comfortable with if, if that is your, your one and two in the backcourt. Um, and that moves me to my next point, Cam Reddish. So Lloyd Pierce has said you know, they have to figure out whether or not uh, Reddish is going to play the two or the three. I personally don't think he's um, you know, better suited at the two. I understand like what they're trying to do just to, to pair someone that is pretty good defensively already with Trey in the backcourt because you're going to need somebody to you know cover up for his uh, defensive uh, limitations. And Reddish already as a rookie showed that you know he has the ability to be you know a pretty solid wing defender in the NBA. 
um, you know, his first couple months of the season were, uh, you know, pretty disastrous. He couldn't shoot the ball, couldn't finish in the lane. Um, you know, he plainly looked like a rookie that didn't know exactly what he was supposed to do. And that really changed, um, at the start of the new year. So with, with Reddish, I think it's interesting because, um, you know, he was drafted 10th and DeAndre Hunter was drafted fourth and Travis Schlenk gave up a ton of capital to move up to get him. And I feel like Reddish has already surpassed him as far as um, his importance to the team. And I'm interested to see what's going to happen this year because with the amount of capital that Travis gave up to draft DeAndre Hunter, my thought is, you know, Hunter is going to have every opportunity to, you know, get it right and, and be the starter. Um, I, I don't know if that's the, the right move in my opinion, just because I think Reddish has more potential to be more of an impact player than Hunter. And, um, you know, the same goes for Kevin Herter. I think, I think Reddish has more potential than Herter just because of his defensive ability. I think right now it's, it's better than Herter. And again, with a roster that's going to be centered around Trey Young for the foreseeable future, you have to have good defenders around him. And, um, you know, Reddish out of those three, at least right now, has shown that he has the most defensive potential. So let's kind of stick in that area. What The last thing you said about the roster being centered around Trey Young, like obviously that's going to happen. My question is, even in in what, what you were just talking about, it seems like you can, you can go too far with that. Um, I think that part of the reason that Young is putting puts up the numbers he does is because everything centers around him. And I just wonder if that almost puts a ceiling on your team if you don't let a guy like like Herder and maybe he'll turn into this player, maybe he won't, but a guy who has some kind of secondary ball handling and uh, creative uh, potential, if you don't actually let him showcase that. And then as you become a better team, if that is almost self-limiting to be so almost one note in that Trey is going to be our offense and then hopefully we can cover for him on defense. It's almost like a, like a, a late 90s, early 2000s uh, uh, 76ers with Allen Iverson redo. That's something I looked at, Seth, and, and you're going to hate me because I'm going to pull out stats and you know how much that that goes well when I do it. But just the fact that like Trey Young in their wins is averaging like 34 points or something like that. And then in their losses, it's such a massive drop to like, you know, 27, I think, or 26. Like they're just so dependent on him. It's, it's, they've swung so far into your, to your term, the heliocentricism of the offense, where it's just all centered around him that it, it ends to be, looks to be a disaster half the time. Well, and the big issue is that when Trey doesn't have the ball, it, it looks like, those Oklahoma City Thunder teams with Russell Westbrook standing up at the, you know, the timeout line, just waiting his turn, essentially. Like, I, this is why I pointed out, I, I, and, and Chris, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here. I think a goal for, for the team needs to be getting him engaged away from the ball and using his gravity in ways that are not just, I'm going to pull the defense out and maybe take a 35 footer. Um, when, when he could be dragging the defense around like Steph Curry. And uh, I'm not one of the people that compares him to Steph Curry, but, you know, Steph is just the best at that. That's something that um, Schlenk has talked about um, pretty consistently over this past year, um, you know, getting Trey more opportunities off the ball. They just didn't have um, a reliable person they felt uh, to, to do that. When you look at Trey's catch and shoot numbers, they're – 
pretty incredible. He's up there with one of the, you know, as one of the best catch and shoot players in the league, but he only had, I think it was 85 uh, opportunities and catch and shoot attempts this season. That, that's just not a, enough for someone who was, who was as effective as he was. I think, um, and I've, one thing I do appreciate with the Hawks is they're really open as far as what they need. And, and this is something that they have stressed uh, over this past year. They, they want to have someone um, who can be a secondary playmaker, um, who can facilitate, who can give Trey some rest. Um, I think he played like 36 minutes per game this year. And that's a lot of minutes for a team that clearly wasn't going anywhere. And, the the reason for that too is because they just didn't have anybody behind him to really limit his minutes. If Trey wasn't on the floor, the Hawks were an awful team. They were an awful team to watch. They were an awful team to cover. Um, and that's part of the problem that they had this season. They just didn't have anybody that they really fully trusted to control the offense and, and to let Trey rest a little bit. Cause like you guys were saying, um, this offense is solely based on Trey Young, what Trey does with the ball, um, who he finds on passes. Everything revolves around Trey. And uh, Travis has said many times that, you know, they want to kind of see what he can do as, as far as like moving off the ball. I think the Hawks were one of the um, lower rated teams as far as off ball movement. They just don't do much off ball movement. And that's even something like Kevin Herter could, could excel at if he, if he was given more opportunities to run off screens and, and catch and shoot. Um, Cause he's, he is one of the better young shooters in the league and, and he didn't have that many opportunities either. So I think that's definitely something that they're probably going to address this off season, whether it's through free agency, they obviously have a ton of cap space, the most in the league and they're projected to have, you know, a top eight pick at worst in the draft. And there are some playmakers in, in the draft who they might decide um, pairs well with Trey in the backcourt and, and can alleviate some of that stress he has just with the usage rate he had this season and, and in his rookie season. Uh, another similarity to the OKC team, they're about to start having, having to make contract decisions. John Collins next year, I think he's up for a max. And, and I don't know how Atlanta doesn't give him the max. I, I think, is he a max player? According to the CBA, he is. Like, just the way it works, the way it functions around the league. Chris, is your expectation that, that they're going to be offering him a max to keep him? I don't know about the max. I know that they're trying to decide what they should do with Collins. And I think one of the things that they are concerned about is Collins has been with the Hawks for three years now. Um, he's missed time in each of those seasons, whether it's suspension or injury. Um and, you know, they haven't won 30 games with him on the roster. Again, it's not Collins's fault that the Hawks have been bad in each of his three seasons. But they also made a pretty significant roster decision at the trade deadline this past year with adding Clint Capella. They didn't get a chance to see what Capella and Collins could look like in the front court together. And just from talking with other executives around the league who had communication with the Hawks, they definitely sense some hesitancy with paying Collins um, that kind of money. I do think that a team like Atlanta, who historically has not been able to draw in 
uh, that caliber of player in free agency, it's probably a decision that they have to make. Can they get someone on, on Collins's level through free agency or trade? I don't know. Um, again, they have the cap space to, to make moves this year. I, I know that the, the market for free agents uh, this upcoming offseason isn't that great. But I also know that, um, you know, they could decide to wait till next summer and see what the market looks like for him in, in 2021. There are a lot of players who are going to be free agents in 2021. Um, maybe a team that strikes out offers him uh, a max contract at that point, and then Travis can decide whether or not to match it through uh, restricted free agency. I do think that Collins pairs really well with Trey, especially offensively. I, I do think that there are some concerns defensively, especially when the Hawks start getting um, good and, and start um, you know, being playoff contenders on whether or not that could work. I, I do think that Collins' defense is a little bit underrated nationally. Um, he definitely took a step forward this year, especially being a rim protector. Uh, he just wasn't that great in his second season, but this year he really took a step forward. But what I do worry about with uh, Collins and, and Capella is that um, you know, the perimeter defense with those two probably is not that great. It, it's probably fine in, in you know the regular season, but once they start getting to the playoffs, I, I do think that there's the potential that teams who go smaller can really exploit that just because I don't know about the foot speed that, uh, Collins and Compella possess. I, I really don't know if they can defend you know, outside the, the three-point line. But as far as the money goes, um, I, I think it's an interesting decision for, for Travis. I know from, um, from speaking with Collins, uh, he wants to be in Atlanta. He loves Atlanta. Um, you know, he wants to grow with Atlanta. He, he loves the, the young core they have. Um, but he also understands that if he doesn't get a contract extension this upcoming uh, upcoming offseason, that there's certainly the potential that he can be dealt at the trade deadline um, this upcoming season. So he's fully aware of that. I, I do think that, in my opinion, if I was Travis, I would probably wait until 2021 just because there's no reason to – to pay him now when there's probably some questions that still need to be answered, whether or not this young um, foundation can win together, whether or not um, him and, and Capella can work together, who knows what they do in free agency, maybe a player they get in free agency pairs better than um, one of the guys who they consider a part of their uh, quote unquote core five. So I think there's so many questions that go into um, a decision like this. And plus, I think something that also needs to be noted is if they wait till 2021 to decide to pay Collins, that cap hold is really, really low mm -hmm. and they could use that for their benefit. And I, I do think that's something that um, Travis might take advantage of in, in 2021. Well, what if they like me, guys? What if they think that Hunter is better off at the four and they think that long term that gives them a better shot at a good defense? Anybody? Anybody see what I'm I, what I'm looking at? I'm kind of picking up what you're putting down, Dave. Yeah, Hunter may be better at the four. I don't know if that if he's good enough for that to be uh, something you you base a decision on. Like that might be where he ends up playing, but is he a starting level four? Well, it's uh, the Abaka. It's the Abaka Harden debate. 
well, come on. The now. way I'm fra- like, framing this, as far yeah. as like the, again sticking with the OKC comparison, because you know the timing of it is pretty similar. Uh, just with all these deals kind of coming back, they're going to be coming back to back to back, and the first one being John Collins. Like it really will it will determine which route they have to go. I think that's a. I mean that that comparison is rough, just because you're it's not about the quality of player. It's yeah, more about but, the situation. Yeah, yeah, but but you have to take that into account. Like Ibaka was, you know, uh, you could you could relatively easily project him into a, a borderline All Star level player, and I think he, for for much of his career, was at that level. Um, Hunter's got a long way to go. Sure, to, and to John Collins, there. I think, could be borderline All Star next year. Yeah, but not you know. Whereas Harden, when they traded him, was was already at that level, and I don't think we we really knew he was an MVP level player, but I think we everyone thought he was a a a not everyone, but it was not uh, inconceivable that he was a he was a a consistent All Star level player. Well, Chris, uh, as we kind of uh, wrap up the Hawks here, how do you feel about the expectations going into next year? Do you do you think that they're realistic to think that they have a shot at, at a playoff run? Or do you think it's another year similar to this one since this one was abbreviated where it's going to be very much about development, figuring out what you've got, and if you know, you're hopeful to get to 35 wins? Lloyd Pierce has um, stated that this is going to be a playoff team next year. Um, I don't know if that's just hot smoke or whatever, um, but anytime you throw out something like that, you're going, you obviously invite the expectations. So now people are going to expect that the Hawks are supposed to be a playoff team next year. Again, with the cap space, they have um, projecting growth from guys like Kevin Herter, Reddish, um, Hunter, maybe Collins um, gets some more playmaking ability in his game that could, uh, you know, raise the floor for the, for the Hawks. Cause that's something that he's talked about needing to add as part of his game. I do think that it's, it's very possible that the Hawks could um, make a, a really big leap, leap from 20 wins this season to, you know, being a, an A seed or seven seed in the Eastern conference, just because again, like the bottom of the East is, is not, um, you know, we're not dealing with world beaters at the bottom of the Eastern conference. And I think with the, the money that they have, the, the talent they can add, if they just add a better bench, like they're going to be a much better team. Cause again, the bench they had this year was awful. Um, it, it was really, really bad. The center position was awful. It might've been the worst, um, position unit across the league. Um, so just, uh, you know, improving on, on the marginal areas for this team, I, I do think it can go a long way. And I really don't think it's crazy to say, um, you know, the Hawks are, are, are supposed to be a playoff team next year, just with getting better players surrounding, this young core and getting a better bench. They have the money to, to do that. And I think that's what they're probably going to do when free agency opens in October. Well, Chris, uh, man, we love your work over at the, uh, the Atlanta vertical and uh, look forward to seeing what happens this off season, man. I, I know you're going to keep us informed. So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And joining us to talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers and their off season outlook our athletic beat writer that covers the Cavs, Kelsey Russo. Hi, Kelsey. Welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. I mean, we literally can't do this without you. 
So, you know, it, it, we're, we're kind of forced to do it. No, I'm just kidding. We're happy to have <laughs> well, you. We're happy to have you, Kelsey. Come on, Dave. Well, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we're forced to. If we're going to if we're going to talk about the Cavs, I mean, you know, you're kind of the natural person for us to talk to here. Um, needless to say, um, the outlook is a little bit bleak. Uh, this is a team that has been rebuilding for the last couple of years now. Um, they don't have a ton of assets. They haven't really had a very high draft pick. What is happening in Cleveland in the short term? Um, they've got Kevin Love, Tristan Thompson. I, I don't think they're going to bring him back. They've got Andre Drummond, who just opted in. Uh, is there any reason for, for any short-term optimism? Uh, question of the day. Um, I mean, you hope so. There, you, know, you try to hang on to some optimism that the, this year will be they'll put it behind them because there was so much turmoil and so much change and just kind of a very crazy year. So that maybe this coming season will be hopefully smoother and then allow them to continue to grow. And I think that's where you can hold on to some optimism and and the outlook of like, okay, well, hopefully it won't, you won't have everything that happened this season happen again. But I think that's really only it right now because of where they are in their rebuild. They're just so they're so far at the beginning that there's there's just a long way for them to go that there's not really a ton of just other than you hope to see growth. Yeah. And that's kind of where you're at. <laughs> How much did the beeline stuff throw this team for a loop this season? I feel like a lot, honestly. Um, I just feel like because you know, guys didn't take to his style, they didn't take to how he coached, and so there was just a lot of people didn't buy in. They weren't buying into how he was, how he was trying to teach and kind of, he was still very, very much stuck in the college mindset, which is understandable. You know, you're coming from coaching college for 40 years, you know, it's kind of like, that's how you operate. And so making that switch to the NBA is so difficult. And for him, I just think it was that adjustment wasn't there and guys didn't take to that very well. And so I think, I mean, I think we saw it when, you know, when Bickerstaff took over that um, guys started to, I mean, they played a little bit better. There was some enthusiasm. There was some kind of this will to, to, to win, even though, you know, it was they in that 11-game stretch, they went five and six. But, like, they won some games that they probably wouldn't have won when Beeline was coach. And, yeah, they weren't going to completely turn around the season at that point and on, obviously, with what happened. But – there just kind of seemed to be some more buy-in to how Bickerstaff approaches coaching and approaches the guys and just more understanding of the game and the NBA as a whole. So um, I think it definitely, I mean, it just had a really large effect. I think we saw that when you look at just kind of the, you know, 40 games under Beeline versus the 11 games under Bickerstaff. So it seems to me that one of the the biggest downsides of, of this season being so full of, of tumult, I guess. I mean, aside from the lived experience of it is um, that's a year almost wasted in terms of development and evaluation uh, specifically of kind of the, the, the young backcourt uh, uh, Sexton Garland, uh, Kevin Porter jr. Um, how much uh, are, are, is the organization taking from what they saw? How much are they hoping it's just kind of a hard reset that they can look at those players a little bit fresh and you know what are their expectations going forward i think especially for garland who who probably flashed the least of the three 
Yeah, and I feel like that's kind of been what I've been trying to figure out of, like, where they stand. You know, I think from, like, conversations I had kind of just throughout the year trying to get to know everybody and and figure out how this organization works, um, you know, they rely a lot on player development and, like, they they pride themselves in player development. So, like, a lot of that is the, the relationships that, like, Garland and Sexton have with assistant coaches and working with those guys and that continued even more um, when Bickerstaff took over. So I don't think it's like, while like, yes, it's kind of this, the season didn't do anybody any justice, but um, I don't know if like you technically throw it completely away because I think they rely a lot on those relationships that they had with the assistant coaches to continue building. And that's continued throughout like this um, the hiatus while they were waiting to hear back. And then once even when they, you know, heard that they weren't going to Orlando, they still had those like relationships with those assistant coaches that they worked specifically with. Like Garland works with JJ Outlaw and Colin was working with Lindsay um, Gottlieb and just like through um, film sessions and just like different things they were working on. I think that maybe they're hoping sticks around and, and translates forward. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you kind of have to take the season with a grain of salt when they evaluate and when they move forward into this coming year that of just with all the turmoil and all the, the craziness. But, um, yeah, I, I think that's probably where they stand. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tough environment when you have two guards like Sexton and Garland kind of vying for position and, 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 and trying to figure out where they fit as a whole in this the, the structure of which that was shattered early in the season and now trying to build some sort of continuity with all with everything where do you see like their commitment with with these guys is it you know are they counting on one of these guys hitting big or are they hoping that both of them can because I think you know Dave wrote a great part in there about you know Sexton looks more like uh a guy that comes off the bench, a six man, a, a Jordan Clarkson, for example, type of player. And I'm just kind of curious what their, what their hope is in the future with these guys. Cause the more I look at it, the more I'm just like, I, I just don't see it too much with them. And that's like conversations I've had actually a lot with Jason, you know, just about the, the pairing of the two, because yeah, like we saw it all season that it's just, it's just not working. And, you know, early on, I feel like they, they really wanted to make this like, two guard system work. And I think there's still this hope that it can, but like, I just think as more evidence kind of has surf- surfaced throughout the season that like, maybe it doesn't, but I think, you know, from when, when bigger staff took over a lot of his early comments were like, um, you know, they're going to experiment with, with lineups and, you know, kind of just figure out the best combinations. And so I think, maybe they are actually really evaluating like does this work between the two of them having garland and sexton on the court together or does sexton move to a six man because when we saw him move into like when um he was with the second unit like uh, when bigger stuff took over they actually played better like he just it just worked better and so i think you know early on definitely they were like hoping that was going to work and i'm not 100 percent sure if that mindset has you know officially changed or if they're still trying to evaluate and kind of use this offseason to really figure out like where to go well some that makes sense some of that may have been the addition of andre drummond Mm -hmm. i mean he only played six games or something like that with them but 
Um, they did seem a little bit more competent. My my biggest concerns with Sexton and Garland together is that Garland doesn't have enough shake off the dribble to to kind of create his own stuff. Mm-hmm. And Sexton's poor at creating for other people. Um, Garland is much more of like an off-ball guy. Like when you look at his numbers, with his usage and uh, free throw rate, he rates more like uh, Clay Thompson than he would any sort of lead initiator for an offense. And so, you know, if you have your lead initiator in Sexton that doesn't, you know, elevate everyone else's play because he's such a fantastic playmaker, which Sexton is not for other people. Um, you've got to figure out someone who could do that. And this is where I start to lean toward Kevin Porter because he already has the ability to create his own looks and he has more prototypical positional size. You know, you can slot Kevin Porter at the two and you're not surrendering as much size if you do that uh, as you would if you did it with Sexton or Garland. I totally, I 100% agree. I think there were even a couple of games in that last stretch before the season ended in March where um, Kevin Porter Jr. was at the two and it just flowed really, really well. And so I think, you know, that's kind of what they wanted to use that last stretch of games for was to really experiment and just actually see what was working and not just kind of feel like they had to stick to Garland Sexton and just kind of like that was the only option. Like they could experiment and, you know, slot guys at different, at different, um, positions and just see their fit together and really actually evaluate how these guys work together because I think that's what was missing a lot this season of like we they just were kind of like stuck in like Garland Sexton and like Kevin Porter at that the three you know and that was that like there was no movement there was no kind of experimenting to see how they fit together and in that last stretch there was and I think that probably sparked some more like thoughts about okay what actually works and what was like what we thought would work and not, and feeling we had to stick to it. And now we can actually work, do what actually works. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So speaking of, of things not working well together, um, Kevin love, let's, let's, let's yeah. get to that. That's it. Just Kevin. Love. Um, no, I, Kevin. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I think that that uh, there was the, the, the there was numerous kind of uh, clips going around of uh, Kevin Love being very frustrated with with some of the play of, of the young guards and just in general his kind of uh, where he at is in his career and and kind of what he's accomplished and where the team is. Obviously, that's a uh, there's a little bit of weirdness there. But given his sort of contractual situation, mm-hmm. I almost feel like they're stuck with him. Is that? Is that your understanding? Are they actively trying to move him? Are they uh, cognizant of the fact that, that might be pretty difficult, uh, or are they thinking that they can still kind of uh, recombobulate that 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 group back together? Yeah. So when I think it goes back to um, honestly the trade deadline and where there was like talks about it, but like they wanted like a first round pick for him, but like teams actually wanted something in addition to Kevin to take on his huge contract. And I think part of it is, it is is like the front office like sees a lot more value in him than I think maybe other front offices around the league because of his, just because of like his age, you know, injury history, just kind of how he, how he fits in with that. I think honestly it's, it's 
while like they'll they'll probably look into moving him, you know, again this offseason because I think that's just one some one of the things they'll look into. I feel like it's going to be even harder though, you know, because of the situation that the league's in with like the salary cap situation, and you know he still has three years of like ninety million dollars on his contract. Like you know what if if it didn't happen at the trade deadline, I feel like it's really hard. It will be really hard to do in the offseason. But I'm curious, and this is something I've been trying to, you know, find out and kind of dig into some more, is of like, really, was it more of, you know, will he play better under JD? Was that something, you know, was there an uptick in his play under him and just his willingness to compete and play along with these young guys and, and actually help lead as a veteran with this team? Or is he really just done? And that I'm not sure yet. I haven't figured that out. Do you- um, Sorry, do do you think they might have cost themselves an opportunity to move Kevin Love by asking for too much last season? It's it's a thought that I posited in the piece, but you know, we don't have the reporting to back this up. Right. And that yeah, I'm not sure. I I don't because if if that was what they were asking, you know, if teams now like in the off season, if that's kind of in the back of their mind, we're like, well, this is what they wanted at the trade deadline. That might kind of just, I don't know, maybe it, it detracts them from even going for it now. I'm not sure. I mean, I think that's, it's a really interesting um, aspect. Actually, like when I read it, I was like, oh, I don't know. Like it just is very, it's a question I think we'll kind of see answered over this off season of just like what happens with, with Kevin. I don't know. I'm to steal Seth's line in the piece, I mean, I think the ship has sailed really in terms of getting, you know, of not having to have to attach an asset to move Kevin with just how much time he has on that contract and how big it is. It's such a difficult thing. Like, I think you're right, Dave. I think it's they they shot themselves in the foot by not moving him when they could have. And now it's you're in that tough spot. There's just no way, unless a contender is really hurting. For, for a guy like Kevin Love, which I'm not sure if there are going to be that many guys. I feel like they're moving away from from that position because you at least want a big that can play a little bit of defense. Mm-hmm. It's, it becomes a scenario where I just don't know if they they can get move Kevin Love and also at the same time give up assets. Like They need to hold on to their assets. They're in rebuilding mode right now. They need to be gathering. They need to be a squirrel getting ready for the wintertime by getting all their acorns. And I think that's kind of the issue that I look with the the Cavs. I just found I find that they're stuck in that scenario with the indecision that they made when they lost LeBron. You know, going like, "All right, we're going to go all in on Kevin Love." I think ended up hurting them, and that's something that goes back a couple of years. But I just think they're going to be paying for that one for a while, and and it's going to put them in a tough spot because he might actually help them win a few more games than they probably should have. Which is not necessarily right. a good thing, right? No, that's what they don't want to do at this yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, they yeah, they don't want to give up assets. They're they're in asset acquiring mode, you know, like that's that's their goal right now is just to continue to acquire what they can. So like giving them up to get rid to move his contract, I feel like defeats the purpose of acquiring those assets. So I think they're just kind of stuck in like one side wants one thing while the other side wants another and they're just they can't they can't find like that happy medium between the two of them. So I totally yeah, I totally agree. As we wrap, uh, let's look forward, okay? Just a little bit, because this is not a team unlike the Hawks, which is the other team we featured this week. Uh, the Cavs probably have no expectations of any sort of success 
in the next few seasons. Um, <laughs> you know, so the the path moving forward for this team, would you say they're just in asset collection and hope mode at this point, yes. waiting for the next LeBron? Probably, yeah. And it's funny because it's like, you know, Cleveland's not a free agent destination, so they're not going to bring somebody from that side of it. But yeah, definitely like asset acquiring, hoping waiting for something to happen you know some sort of miracle to <laughs> to surface <laughs> well uh kelsey thanks so much for for coming on and adding some some insight some inside information uh to our speculation and uh hey good luck have fun covering the Cavs. thank you <laughs> it's i mean you know it's, it's not gonna they're not gonna win a lot but i i feel like you're gonna have some interesting stories i mean if year one is any you know any outlook to what is ahead i you know it's going to be just continuing to be interesting and i'm gonna it's it's enjoyable you know this year was kind of a wild one so i feel like it set the bar pretty high for what uh you know the next few years but yeah we'll just have fun watching them continue to grow hopefully (laughs) well that's gonna do it for this week folks uh special thanks to chris and kelsey for joining us uh for seth for mo for mike smeltz who was popping in this week pushing buttons. Uh, I'm Dave DeFore, and we'll be back next week with more Nerder She Wrote.